0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hegel. And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran center-half, Heraclitus.
1: The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad!
0: Welcome to Philosophy for Theologians. My name is Jared Oliphant. We have a great discussion for you on uh, Thomas Aquinas and his article, Whether God Exists. Um, to my right is Jonathan Brack who is admissions counselor at Westminster Theological Seminary. How are you doing Jonathan? Very good. Thank you, Jared. And we also have Bob Larocca as I mentioned, a uh, current student at Westminster Theological Seminary. How are you doing Bob? Oh, very well. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Well, we want to get into this a little bit. I'll let Bob lead the discussion and then we'll comment on it along the way. Um, I was do you want to start off a little bit on just your interest in Aquinas? And you, you've been reading him a lot, not just this, but his whole you know, body of works. Um, what, what is piquing your interest about Aquinas these days? I guess it comes from uh, my search for a
1: viable philosophy based upon our Reformed theological principles. Because uh, mm. at, you know, what, what we learn about here at Westminster is, what are the foundations for a life and world view? Now, a very important aspect of any life and worldview are the philosophical principles that undergird it. Right. So which philosophical principles? I mean, there's been a whole gamut in the history uh, the history of, of thought of uh, ways in which um, people have been trying to found knowledge, found being, find ethics. And uh, so which of those findings? Or, you know, what, where, what, where's the next step beyond our principles that we found within the dogmas handed down by the apostles? Mm-hmm. And uh, so far in that search, at least my working assumption, maybe, uh, maybe my hypothesis is that the scholastics of the medieval and post-Reformation age um, g- give answers that none of the other traditions actually give. And uh, their philosophy is almost in more accordance with, or maybe more naturally rises out of, those dogmatic principles. Hmm. So even within my own studies, what I'm seeking to do is not change anything in terms of the theology that I learned here at Westminster, the Reformed theology, you know, handed down from the centuries. But see, on top of that theology, based upon that theology's principles, maybe perhaps especially the principles of ascending and and *cognoscendi*, the the being of God and his revelation in Scripture, out Mm -hmm. of that, which philosophy is most naturally arises out of those particular principles and how the Reformed Church has understood them throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. And so I find within Aquinas and uh, the other scholastics, especially the Reformed scholastics, who had a modified Thomism, and that Thomism is, a, is a, just a, a phrase for what, you know, Thomas's body of thought, and uh, just the way it works together as a system. But the Reformed scholastics, many of those who uh, would have, pen, you know, the kinds of people who penned the Westminster Confession of the Faith, the mm-hmm. kinds of people who were writing the very first dogmas, dogmatics after the, the age of, uh, of Calvin and Luther, they held on to a modified Thomism and uh in many respects especially within their doctrine of god and um how modified that thomism is is something i'd like to discover right. so thomas you know is
0: by, is you know the one
1: probably the most for, the foremost scholastic in the middle ages so you have to give him you know, due attention
0: yeah Uh, And he's called by his first name, Thomas. Yeah, and that's (laughs) it. Which other philosopher? Well, there (laughs) there is Aristotle, who is
2: called
1: the philosopher. Yeah,
2: that's pretty big. You can't... (laughs) The philosopher. Yeah, it's
1: not like Thomas is called the theologian. But that's almost the case. Actually, that was almost the case in 1878, when Pope Leo XIII declared him to be the doctor of Mm -hmm. the church, Hmm. and that you should look back to his theology as any kind of uh, progress or development of the dogmas of the church. So he's a pretty big deal.
2: Now I think your your whole approach is is wise because usually when you hear Thomism in reform circles if it's not referring to the doctrine of God usually people sort of dismiss it because there might be one or two things wrong with it at root and that can lead to problematic conclusions. But what you're doing here is you're saying, well, if we if we modify it, we can't we shouldn't just throw the whole thing out. We should we should look at to what a lot of it offers us. Yeah.
1: And that's what, uh, you know, I've r- been reading a little bit of Richard Muller's uh, post-Reformation reform dogmatic yeah. series, you know, yeah. uh, especially volume one and two. And, and in volume one, he describes that what was the principle, or maybe it's not a principle, but maybe the pattern or habit that the Reformed scholastics in the, si- in the se- 16th and 17th century, 17th century had is that they were eclectic. Mm-hmm. They drew from all these different sources, especially within their classical education. All these guys, if they made it that far, all studied Latin at four years old. And were completely literate in Latin, and they, what they drew upon were the medieval scholastics. They drew upon them like we draw upon Voss and Ritterboss and Warfield. right? You know? And that was, even though there was disagreements, and they, they I mean, there was, there was fundamental disagreements, they were wise and took the best from those traditions. And out of all of those, out of all the scholastic traditions... And uh, even though you know those men constantly, constantly disagreed with each other more than anyone, it was Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, mm. and and the interesting point is that if you read if you read the Puritans, especially a man like John Owen or Francis Turretin, you know he's not a Puritan but but a, but a mm-hmm. scholastic, they have it assumed in the back of their of of, of their almost in the, their mind. It's assumed in their writings that you're already familiar with especially articles like these, the article that we're going to discuss on the existence of God. But much of the Summa, because that was. The theological textbook in yeah. Europe for a good two hundred years mm-hmm. and um so that was lost. I think that was lost in the enlightenment and it's lost even amongst the prince uh the princetonian theologians uh like hodge and warfield um i mean not to not to a great extent i'm not sure- I'm not saying that they were completely unaware, but the scholastic flavor and all the and other things that the scholasticism could offer were somewhat uh has somewhat you know waned through the mm-hmm. centuries and i'd love to see that kind of thing revived
0: yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's get into a little bit. This is, you know, for people who are studying philosophy of religion, for any um, theologian who is in the general realm of apologetics, this is kind of standard fare um, to read this article and the five ways. The five ways are always touted as kind of the first place you go to in apologetics, um, especially in some other circles. But I wanted to get into just the first way now uh and bob you want to just kind of lead us through this um it's it's a pretty short section i mean all five ways are about you know two pages um so we're just going to take it apart a little bit and then um see where it goes
1: that's that's uh why the five ways is why they are so famous and why they've just been so influential is because they're terse Mm -hmm. they're short and they're abundantly clear Mm -hmm. it is just it's not very difficult to see what Thomas is doing and his reasoning process, and mm-hmm. that's I mean that's why he is the patron saint of teachers in the Roman Catholic Church is because he's good at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always a jo- I remember Dr. Truman made this joke here at the seminary that uh, Thomas is by far easier to read than the Thomists, and that I mean it's true. I mean, uh, uh, the, one of the first things I want to uh, talk about is the sources, the secondary sources that I was drawing upon. And uh, if you have any interest in anything that we're talking about or you have interest in Thomas Aquinas or his philosophy in general, uh, one of the sources that I drew upon most heavily was uh, by a guy named John F. Whipple down at Catholic University of America. And in 2000, he wrote The Metaphysical Thought of Thomas Aquinas. If you have any interest at all in Thomas or his philosophy, this is the book. It is, I mean, it's recent, but it is, it, it will lord over Thomas' studies for Probably decades hmm. and uh, there's an excellent section in the back on the five ways where he goes through each way, and um, even some discussions that unfortunately i don't think we'll have time to get into with comparing well what happens when you have a a, a, a proof from motion that we 're going to get into what how does that look with the Newtonian physics or something like, and things like that so he's kind of brings it up into the up, uh, to this day and age yeah and the second one is uh, father joseph owens he's another very big name in the field, and he wrote a book um on Thomas Aqu- Saint Thomas Aquinas and the existence of God, and half the book is on the first way. Wow! So, with that in mind, uh, let's. I want to introduce what are what are fi- uh, Thomas's five ways, and particularly this time we're going to be focusing on the first. Uh, the first thing to say about Thomas's uh, five ways is that they are not intended to prove anything about the essence of God. And That's so. Good. This is, I mean, if you have any, if you know uh, a bit of history of apologetics or maybe history of medieval philosophy, you'll know that this is very distinct from Anselm's argument, the ontological argument. Uh, uh, Thomas's argument was always, is called usually the cosmological argument, and his is distinct from the ontological argument in that Anselm's argument, which, which you know, is famously summarized in, in God is that which is greater than can be con, uh, conceived. And none can. And then... From that, from that principle, once you start thinking about that which, that which, uh, that which, not anything could greater. Be greater than receive I'm yeah.
0: Confusing the words here. <laughs> there's a couple of ways to phrase that. Yeah,
1: there is. I mean, there's a bunch of uh, there's a there's a bunch of prepositions in there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the greatest you can, you conceived can, being. You can start. Yeah. That's a perfect being theology. It's almost like a factory of divine att- attributes. Because well, when I think of perfect goodness, goodness, then yeah, that's greater than I can even conceive. Then I know that God's all these things, all these, all these, um, these, you know, these supreme attributes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, but Thomas rejects that. He's not trying to prove anything about the essence of God or who God is. What he's going for is the existence of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to I want to focus before we get to the third article. The second article, uh, and this is question two of, of Thomas's Summa Theologica. The second article asks this question. Whether it can be demonstrated that God exists, and uh, the first objection. This is the way. I'm not sure if you realize the scholastic method. The way they they would ask a question, they would introduce all the objections to the answer that Thomas will give you. Then Thomas will cite an authoritative uh, source in his support. He'll give his answer, and then he'll give the answers to the objections. So I just want to go over the, the objections to whether God can be demonstrated because these objections delineate what Thomas is going to be trying to do in his five ways. The first objection, it says that it seems that the existence of God cannot be demonstrated for it is an article of faith that God exists. But what is of faith cannot be demonstrated. So the first objection says that it is an article of faith, the existence yeah. of God and what is of faith cannot be rationally uh demonstrated because then it would no longer be of faith. We'll get his we'll get into his answers to these object, objections when we get into some reformed critique later on. Then the second one is really important for us. And the second objection in and in, in the second article says further the essence is the middle term of a demonstration. So when you have a syllogism, right? If I were to have like one of the famous syllogisms, uh every every uh, every man is mortal, right? Socrates is mortal. Now, I just named an essential attribute of Socrates. So he's saying the essential attribute is in the middle term of a syllogism. Uh, so it says, further, the essence is the middle term of, of demonstration, but we cannot know in what God's essence consists, but solely in what it does not consist. This is the via negativa, that we only can know what God isn't. We can't know what God is. So how can we form any syllogisms? Um, and he quotes John Damascus and says that we cannot demonstrate that on faith that we cannot demonstrate that God exists if we don't know His essence. Thomas somewhat agrees, and he and, he, and so for that reason he does not want to prove the essence anything about the essence of God. He mm-hmm. only wants to say that God exists. Okay. So that's very important. That distinguishes his proof from many other medieval proofs, including Don Scotus's. And so and when he gets to the a- I answer that, now every single article in all of the Summa Theologica, I'm not, I not forget how many hundreds of them, there will be an I answer that section where Thomas gives his opinion. I and he answer makes, that. Yeah. And he makes an, uh, he makes a, an important distinction. Where he distinguishes between an a priori uh, proof, or in Latin it's called a propter quid argument. Now, a propter quid argument means that you're, ar- you're trying to identify or maybe predicate a certain thing based upon its essence. So, for instance, this would be a—maybe I would say, John Brack is made in the image of God, therefore he is in a covenantal relationship. And so if I were to say John is made in the—John Brack is made in the image of God, he is in a covenantal relationship with God. So I just took John Brack's essence, and from that essence—I think it's an essential attribute for John being human to be in the image of God— from that essence, I delineated another predicate in in a covenantal relationship. Right. That is the kind of argument that we do not have because we do not have access to the essence of God, according to Aquinas. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. So Thomas favors an a posteriori argument, or in Latin it's called the quia. And the quia argument, and that, you know, that's from the that argument where you're pointing to the effects. It reasons from the effects. So, for instance, if I were to see John Brack carrying books, I can, might be able to predicate, oh, John Brack is a student. And I can put together all these other effects right. to kind of put together who John Brack is. Right.
2: He can read,
1: yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. He's literate.
2: Yeah, he works for UPS,
1: and so I can start. <laughs> yeah, some. I mean, that that sometimes can be the problem, but you can come up with arguments that are convincing based yeah, upon sure. the effects. Yeah. I mean, I, if I came up with all, you know, with, <laughs> if I saw his passport, maybe then I can say he's an American citizen, something right, like right. that. And sure. you probably wouldn't argue with me. Yeah, I mean, unless you're going to say he's a spy or something <laughs> like that. I mean, you can go that way. Right. So, that is, that's a, I think these, Article 2 introduces what Aquinas is going to be doing in Article 3, which is proving that God exists. So, he opts for the later, and uh, he says, I'm only demonstrating the existence of God and not the essence. And that's going to be a, that's going to be a fundamental object of critique for uh, some, of, some of those in our tradition,
0: and we'll see that a little bit later.
1: So, uh... Do you guys have any uh, questions or anything like that? Are you, are you kind of discussing points or?
0: No, I mean, yeah, we'll probably get to just Good. you know the, an overall overview um, a little bit later after you kind of went went through went through well, the arguments
1: because it's so short. Um, I want to read the first article and I'll try to read it slowly and clearly. And uh, I'll start. I'll start out off with after after uh, he brings up some ex- objections against the existence of God. The first uh, one is that. Uh, it's interesting. He kind of, he kind of brings up a, uh, the problem of evil. That's the first objection he he registers. And the second objection is somewhat from the, it's like an Occam's razor before Occam was born. It's saying that, well, if, you, if God can't be the explanatory cause here because there's easier explanatory causes than God. But he answers that, and now he says, on the contrary, which is now he's going to cite the authority, authoritative source, he says, it is said of the person of God, I am who I am. Quoting Exodus 3.14. And he says, I answer that the existence of God can be proved in five ways. Now, let me just read these uh, couple paragraphs. He says, the first and most manifest way is the argument from motion. It is certain and evident to our senses that in the world, some things are in motion. Now, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another. For nothing can be in motion except it is in potentiality to that towards which it is in motion whereas a thing moves in as much as it is an act. For motion is nothing else than the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality. But nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except by something in the state of actuality. Thus, that which is actually hot, as fire, makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot, and therefore moves and changes it. Now, It is not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality in the same respect, but only in different respects. For what is actually hot cannot simultaneously be potentially hot, but it is simultaneously potentially cold. It is therefore impossible that in the same respect, and in the same way, a thing should be mover and moved, i.e., that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. If that by which it is put in motion be itself be put in motion, then this also must needs be put in motion again. But this cannot go into affinity, because then there would be no first mover and consequently no other mover, seeing that subsequent movers move only inasmuch as they are put in motion by the first mover, as the staff moves only because it is put in motion by the hand. Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at the first mover, and, uh, uh, sorry, therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover, put in motion by mo- no other. And this, everyone understands to be God.
0: Everyone so, understands that to be God. Yeah, I mean, everyone... Absolutely. Dissipated. Everyone. So why is he writing? <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: the first thing uh, the first thing I want to get into is that all the philosophical background, which is very strange to us moderns because we're just not exposed to Aristotelian physics, motion, and Aristotelian metaphysics, potentiality and actuality. Yeah. So you, I mean... When we think of motion, we probably think of gravity. We probably think of Newton's laws. uh, And this is not on a 13th century man's mind. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I want to introduce is motion. And in Aristotelian uh, physics, motion has a dozen different – there's a dozen different ways things can be – have motion. Motion is actually a thing. And that's also very strange to us. It's It's a being that when something moves, you are adding being to it. And so that will get into the metaphysics that I'll talk about in just a second. But so in Aristotelian uh, physics, there is, things can be moved in a qualitative sense, a quantitative sense, and in a local sense. And you can yeah. see all those right here. So for instance, if I were to get smarter, let's say I go to school and I read or maybe I'm living my life and I grow more wise, qualitatively, I am now a smarter person and I've been affected by things from without. I've been moved. To intelligence, mm-hmm. smarter. That's qualitative motion. Another one is quantitative motion. Um, and for instance, you could see if uh, if you grow, maybe if a tree grows from seed to into into a full-grown tree, it's actually quantitatively in size growing. So and it's that, more
0: physical and empirical.
1: Yeah, it is. It's motion. Yeah. It's motion because something is happening to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one is this one's more easy for us is that local motion. If I move, if I throw a ball across the room. I've now, that ball, that ball has gone from here to there, and it has been moved.
0: Mm-hmm. You've done the local motion. Yeah. <laughs> Come um, on, baby. So
2: Do the local motion.
1: How do, how do all these understandings of motion fit within the metaphysics? Now, this, is get, this gets, to, I think it's uh, Book Lambda, which is uh, Book Lambda of uh, Aristotle's metaphysics, where he discusses, po- discusses potentiality and actuality. And this is the metaphysical background to the five ways. And we can see this. Uh, we can see this right here. He says, for motion is nothing else than that. That was reduced from something from potentiality to actuality. But nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except something in the same, sorry, except something in the state of actuality. Now, in all Aristotelian metaphysics and Thomistic metaphysics, there all things are being an essence. and essence. And in creatures, there's a distinction between being and essence. So, for instance, we are, I'm a person, right? And I have, the, I have, I have been given being. I, my essence is humanity, which, is, which uh, for Thomas is in the mind of God. And then that form, which is in the mind of God, has been actuated by, uh, by being. So being here is actuality, and essence is the potentiality. So for instance, um, you have the potential to get up and go across this room. Mm-hmm. That's within that's within your essence to be able to do that. I mean, well, a word that we get from this is possibility. It comes from the Latin word posse, which means to be able. So same kind of pot- uh, potentiality. There is there is some discontinuity there. But our, for instance, you have the possibility to stay to stay still this is within your essence.
0: It's kind of, It's almost. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it almost sounds like essence is like a container that you can fill up. That's, um, a,
1: that's a. That's a. That's a good way of kind of putting it.
0: Yeah, and then there's the possibility is the lack of that container not being filled.
1: Well, this is this is where I'll try to make it clear.
0: Is that um, for
1: also another uh, in, in Thomistic metaphysics, goodness to be good is a transcendental property of um, of being. So when you actuate something, when you add being to it, you're making it good. When you take away being from it, you're actually uh, taking away its goodness, its its existence. And that comes from Augustine, right? That comes more so more so from Aristotle, or okay. more so. I mean, Augustine would get that from from Plato right. that the forms exist in a more fundamental way than we do as matter.
2: As far as the Material. sort of Christianizing that into a, a sort of view of yeah. good and evil, right? Yeah. And,
1: and it's interesting that Augustine kind of abandoned that for a little bit more of a covenantal belief in, in good and evil right. when he's facing Pelagius at the end of his life. Uh, but yeah, when he was doing the Librio uh, Arbito, his uh, on, free, on, on free will, he was still very much within this, within this kind of Neoplatonic strain. Mm-hmm. So let me, so goodness is a transcendental property of being. So let me, let me flesh this out with some examples. I am potentially healthy you know i i consider myself a pretty healthy guy but i could probably be healthier i could probably eat more vegetables and i could probably <laughs> you know exercise a little bit more i could probably be in a little bit better shape i could probably be a little bit healthy even though healthier even though i'm somewhat healthy now so i have the potential to be healthy mm-hmm. or healthier also i have the potential to be sick right i i have the potential to lose my health And maybe I'm doing this to myself. Maybe I'm eating the wrong foods. I'm never exercising. I'm smoking or something like that. And I'm losing my health. So in this way, health is a being. Health is good. And because it's good, it shares in that transcendental property of being. So what happens with potentiality and actuality? You're moved in either way. You can have health added to you, and that's actuating health in you. Or you can have – you can be – you can have be deprived of health, and that is almost diminishing your being, mm-hmm. because that that has now moved you along along this uh, along this kind of gradient of potentiality and actuality. So, almost to live to your full potential is to actuate yourself fully, and this kind of gets into Aristotelian ethics. But so for in this way, that's what motion is: is how are you moved from being more healthy or moved to be more sick? Can you move yourself in that way? Or can things move themselves in that way? For instance, if I wanted to kill a plant, is that can that plant just die on its own? That's a Thomas's point. Mm-hmm. It can't. It must be moved by another. It must be actuated by another. This gets into the, what he says down here. He says, now it is not possible that the same thing should be at once actual and potential in the same respect. Does this make sense? So if you're if you're already healthy, let's say you're healthy to the to the maximal amount of health, can you be still potentially healthy? No, no, because you because your actu- your you're, you're, your potentiality has been actuated. Therefore, your potentially potentiality to be healthy has been wiped out. Right. But as much as you are potential, you're potentially, uh, sorry, as as much as you're actually healthy, that's how much also you are almost proportionally potentially to be sick because okay. at that point you can i mean all that potentiality is mm-hmm. there for you to uh for your health to diminish okay so you cannot be those two things at the same time and he says for what is actually hot cannot be same simultaneously potentially hot and what is simultaneously potentially cold it is therefore impossible that's in the, that in the same respect in the same way a thing should be both mover and moved because only things that actually have that actuated um that that actuated being within them, for instance, maybe the fire, can move something else to be hot. So okay. this, so the fire has the actuality of hot, hotness, and it can only move other things to be hot. But if you are already hot, you can't move yourself to be more hot, more hot, because yeah. you are actually hot. You have to be moved from. I mean, it's almost like if you were to get caught in a fire, something like that, your own burning can't burn you any longer you need to still be exposed to the fire now i mean you could always say well what if i have gasoline on me or my clothes catch on fire but still you're exposed to fire you're not Mm -hmm. just going to be you're just not going to be perpetually putting yourself uh putting yourself to heat because you are you have the you have the actual heat you already have okay so in the same way do you see how this works out with motion yeah and this is this is the whole metaphysical underlay to this kind of argument and he's and this is it's almost like Thomas's metaphysics in a little con- container here, because you'd have to realize this kind of distinction between potentiality, actuality, being, and essence. And that things that be can actuate other things to be, or they could also uh, take away things and, and uh, add privations. Now, in Thomistic metaphysics, privations also have a being, but it's very low on the scale. It's neither here or there. <laughs> so, it's private. <laughs> yeah. Privation, you know, when, if you're to take something away, you know, that actually yeah. exists. That's why for um, for Augustine and, and Aquinas, sin is privation. Sin yeah. is taking away from your actual being mm-hmm. and leaving you with only potential mm-hmm. until you almost diminish into nothingness.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's like percentages. I'm 65% good, and then the other person affects me. Well, now I'm 55% good. Right. And you, know, you can see And so I'm now I'm forty five percent evil if you want to call it that, but that's the You can just see like how lack. this
1: how this was um you can also see how, especially in the especially in the Roman Catholic Church, how this would be uh harbored by a, a, a penance system. Yeah. Where where um clergymen or saints have actuated their potentiality to a greater degree than they may, may perhaps the masses.
2: Mm-hmm. Also I can't help but think of CS Lewis and his like understanding of heaven versus hell and hell's like very not real. Right. You know it's like you can't really touch anything it's it's always fleeting it's because it's, yep. Yeah.
1: And that's and that and that's and yeah that's exactly the point is that it, it's almost it's almost like a a nothingness. Right. It's like a privation. So let me just uh, as almost a recap uh you cannot be potentially something and actually something in the same respect. Therefore, things cannot be act Sorry, th- things cannot be the act that they are only potentially in the same act. So, you cannot be your own heat. You right. need heat from the sun. You cannot be your own wisdom. You need wisdom from God. And that's Thomas's point. Where does this all come from? So, um he brings up this, uh, this is pretty much his, his principle of uh, I'm in motion, so I cannot put myself in motion because I cannot be the act by which I already have been actuated. Hmm. Yeah. And so he brings up an infinite regress and uh, the infinite, the infinite regress that we cannot go back and causes. But I want to introduce that in the next time when we do the second way. So I'll skip over that for now. Um, but his point is, is so what actuates everything? going back in causes. And this, he says, is God. Everyone, everyone knows or everyone understands God is the first act to actuate all these potentialities, which in his, uh, in his doctrine of divine ideas are in his, in the mind of God, to speak, you know, anthropomorphically. Right. Okay. And so he, 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 he has these exemplars, and he actuates them into existence because he is pure act. There is no potentiality in God. He is everything he ever is and ever will be. Mm-hmm. I am who I am. Right. I hope that wasn't uh, as convoluted as it sounded coming out of my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> no, that no,
0: was no, really no. great. It's, a, it, it's short. It's a good description. Um, yeah, and obviously it, it affects everything. Um, you know, philosophically from that point on.
1: Yeah. It's um. What what is interesting is that I I I appreciate much of this metaphysics. I just uh, what I one of the things one of the one of the base baseline objections is that when you're when you're reasoning from causes to effects and you're causing god the effect you have to somehow believe that god affects things in a similar manner as the rest of things affect things just like mm-hmm. fire affects wood just like the sun affects uh, a plant so god has affected or actuated this world into existence mm-hmm. and so you need a you need some kind of doctrine of analogy that is somehow assumed that, in some way, God's actions of causation are similar or analogous to the causations that we see, that are evident in this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's no one is really going to be denying motion, or that mo- or at least that we perceive motion. And so, is the motion that we perceive similar to, or can it be? Can we reason from that motion to say that God affects things in a similar manner? Yeah, well, that that's assumption. That's assumed here. Yeah, and you need a doctrine of analogy. Now, we in the, we we uh, in the Reformed tradition, we have a doctrine of analogy, but we have guarantees from scripture. So far, that's that's you don't find that here. Yeah, and so that can be a little bit disconcerting.
0: And you know what's always pointed out in this is, um, you know, we we observe that motion happens, and then it's just another assumption is well, there's got to be a first mover. I mean, you, you can't just have just motion you know on as an infinite right, regress right. um where does that come from we can't why why not it's not explained why yeah. that can't be the case it's just it's got to be a first mover and so that's you know assumption number 1 and then assumption number 2 is well so since we know that well that's god everyone knows that that's god yeah van till uh, i'm going
1: <laughs> to i'm going to get into some of our uh reformed theologians and their critiques and and you can tell van Til hates that <laughs> know. he wants nothing to do with what everyone calls god
0: uh huh yeah, we'll save that
1: for uh, for. <laughs> f- we'll save that for the objections, and actually, actually, let's get to those now. Okay. The first thing, what I think, what I find most interesting when I when I intro- as I introduce these uh, reformed criticisms or criticisms from reformed theologians, is to see how Aquinas answered those two first objections. Remember the objections that I, I talked about before—the mm-hmm. one where it's an article of faith, and you cannot demonstrate articles of faith. The second objection that it's uh, an essence is always the second. Um, in second place in the the syllogism, but we are not privy to the divine essence? Yeah. Let's see how he answers. So, uh, uh, reply to objection one. Now, this is the one on the preamble of faith. Aquinas says says that the existence of God and other, uh, like truths about God, which can be known by natural reason, are not articles of faith, but are preambles to the articles of faith. For faith presupposes natural knowledge, even as grace presupposes nature and perfection supposes something that can be perfected nevertheless there is nothing to prevent man who cannot grasp a proof accepting as a as a matter of faith something by which in itself is capable of being scientifically known and demonstrated so what so he's aquinas
2: saying, is a presuppositionalist
1: well <laughs> <laughs> what he's saying is that uh the proof of God's existence, or your knowledge of nature, your knowledge of physics, your knowledge of these demonstrable proofs in philosophy, our preamble, are presupposed by our faith. Now, any Vantilian should hear that and just almost have their wires crossed, because we would say, no, grace doesn't presuppose nature. Nature presupposes grace. And you see how this is happening here. Let me introduce then this is Bavink, and you'll see Bavink he doesn't reference it, he doesn't footnote it, but he's almost voicing the first objection back at him. Hmm. Almost just
0: louder.
2: Cool.
1: Let me let me read some Bavink. This is in volume two, and it's uh, on page fifty-four at the bottom. And uh, going on of
0: reform dogmatics. Oh,
1: sorry, of of reform dogmatics. And uh, going on to fifty-five. Bavink says this insights help. This insights, sorry, this insight helps us to consider aright the so-called proofs for God, uh, sorry, proofs for God's existence, neither overestimating or disdaining them. Christian theology accepts the support given by the convictions about God by pagan philosophy, but judges these proofs within the doctrine of faith, not as preambles to it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, Christian conviction about what can be known about God apart from special revelation is a valid natural theology. However, when this natural theology stands on its own in a self-sufficient and rationalistic fashion and sets aside the need for special revelation, it is an invalid and impious activity. Yes. Mm. So. Thank you, Bavinck. You see, I mean, Bavinck, there is no Bavinck. footnote at the bottom, but Bavinck is critiquing uh, Aquinas' answer. To that first objection. Yeah. Saying that, no, this does not, this is not posterior. Right. Sorry, this is not anterior, I should say. Yeah. Nix that. This is not, the proof of God's existence is not anterior. Yeah. To the principles of faith, articles of faith. The articles of faith are first.
2: It's not preambles.
1: Yeah, they're not preambles. That's great. Let me, uh, let me, uh, the same, the same page, uh, uh, 55 in Volume 2 of Reformed Dogmatics, way at the bottom. He says, the proofs, may, uh, the, the proofs may augment and strengthen our faith, but they do not serve as its grounds. There you right. go. They are, rather, the consequences, the products of faith's observation of the world. The proofs do not induce faith, and the objections against them do not wreck it. They are instead testimonies by which God is able to strengthen already given faith. Hmm. Now, that stands in direct contrast to what Aquinas is getting at here. Aquinas says that, uh, that grace presupposes nature. That means that nature is anterior and grace is posterior. I think we as Protestants, especially we as uh, Vantilians, would have to reverse that. Yeah. Is that right. without the principles given to us in Special Revelation... Uh, without that, those dog without those dogmas handed to us down, handed to us by the prophets and the apostles, mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit, to whom shall we go? There is nothing. Yeah, there is nothing prior.
0: That's just Romans one.
1: Now, of course, general revelation is assumed, but these things are revealed, and I'll mm-hmm. get in, I'll get into that last. That's kind of my critique that I couldn't find in these guys. I try to give these guys my voice, but <laughs> uh, but well, and so it, it's interesting that he. Um, that he referenced. I drew one more baving quote before I leave because he's really good to, he's really good to Can't read.
2: Can't get them. enough Babin. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that should be on the back on the sleeve. <laughs> Jonathan Brack says all about Babin. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: right. He says this is page
1: 81. I'm sorry. I was on the wrong page. Page 81 uh, at the bottom. Now the cosmological proof. Now this is what uh, the first way, and 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 in in the five ways that it is the cosmological argument for God's existence. So he says, Bavink, Now the cosmological proof has evident has evidential force only if all these assumptions are correct, assumptions that are handed to us by dogmatic theology in the previous paragraph. But it's uh, too too long to read. If it rightly concludes that, like all things individually, so the world as a whole in, co- in it, as comprising all these things must have a cause but that is as far as it takes us it does not say anything about the character and the nature of that cause think of the objection too we don't have, we are not privy to this essence of god anyone concluding that the world must uh, must have a cause which in itself also has a cause has done justice to the logical force of the argument that this cause is infinite, absolute and perfect, does not follow directly from the cosmological argument, but is the source uh, but it has its source in other considerations. Now, an infinite series of causes is, in fact, inconceivable and impossible. No one accepts such an infinite series. All recognize that the existence of an absolute ground, a primary being, whether this is called God or the absolute substance or power, matter or will. Now, if this supposition is correct, as everyone in fact admits, the cosmological, cosmological argument has taken us to an important conclusion, namely, to a self-existence, hence infinite, eternal, and absolute cause of the world. But whether this cause uh, is transcendent or merely imminent, personal or impersonal, conscious or unconscious, it, it uh, has not in any way been settled by the argument. Oh, that's
0: awesome. That's great. great. That's so
1: dead on. So... I, I find that very helpful, and what's interesting is you find—what what I wanted to point out is you find these objections in Thomas. Thomas knows mm-hmm. that they're there, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but hey, I, don't, I just don't think his answers to those objections actually really hold water. Yeah, yeah. And they don't hold water because uh, he has this conviction that there is philosophy and there's theology, and they are separate based upon separate principles, f- uh, is based upon reason— theology or the, you know the, the mysteries of faith are based upon revelation but never do reason and revelation meet they can never contradict each other and mm-hmm. when they do revelation always wins that's great if you look in the history of, of theology that's rare especially in our modern <laughs> age yeah, yeah. Right. so you got to give them some credit for that that sure. revelation always wins but they are based upon different principles yeah. so that's where he's
2: going for uh, I wanted yeah do- what does van Til have to say about okay
1: well if you remember the second objection about the essence being the middle of the uh right syllogism the middle of the syllogism yet again you wouldn't find this in the footnotes in this book but it's it's all right there it's very interesting he says uh, r- what r- is this from oh sorry this is from <laughs> this is from the reformed pastor in modern thought uh, i think this was, oh. this came out later in his career i think after he retired from the seminary huh and I didn't uh know that. It is on page ninety-five, and it's uh, in the subsection "The Proofs of God's Existence." And he says, "This pure univicism, and univicism means that we can predicate uh, things in God in a similar way, mm-hmm. so that uh, maybe it's by proportion that you know this chair is good, God's good, and yeah. God is just more good."
0: Yeah, so, yeah exactly. <laughs> he
1: says, uh, <laughs> "This pure univicism fatalism is not immediately seen to be the result of his argument because Thomas, following Aristotle." has inserted the fact of prime matter as the actual principle of individuation. It's complicated, but we'll get, to we'll, get, we'll get to that. The last thing Aristotle and Thomas want to arrive at is a stark identity philosophy. Yet on their principles, the only way to escape this is to assume an ultimate non-rational principle of individuation, which is exactly what all Greek people do. Because uh, the Greeks have always been able, at well, least Plato and Aristotle, they can make sense of universals. Universal essences, whether they exist somewhere out there for Plato or things for Aristotle, but what they cannot make sense of is how we individuate these things, how our mind has access to individuals. That's kind of what he's getting at. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) I digress. He is quite willing to say that man cannot by reason prove the nature of God. He can only prove his existence, as we've been saying. But of course he cannot make this distinction absolute. It would make no sense to prove the existence of something about the nature of which you have no information at all. What's the point? You cannot prove just pure existence or a grand proportion of existence mm. that this person exists in a fundamental way, but you can't really say anything about it. We don't have any we don't have any object that we know of like that. Is there anything that you know of that exists but you don't know anything about it? No no there isn't so it's just <laughs> as almost, soon as you say
2: it then it just defeats yeah, it yeah it just defeats it yeah. so i mean this
1: is it what he's trying it to say is there's you know, that mean, ether
2: it it, it out there. just
1: bucks against all aristotelian metaphysics that say that something has um matter but not form existence but on essence in
2: Except every case, super strings, right string theory Oh, I have no idea about that. (laughs) I have no idea
1: about that either. Back to to (laughs) medieval.
2: We'll do super strings next
0: time. Yet the
1: nature of his argument uh, really required him to say that he knew all about the nature of God. On his argument, he could not at all prove the existence of God unless he fully knew the nature of God. Now, let me just uh, get to his reply because I think I, t- I forgot to do that. And you'll see Aquinas' reply. reply to the object- objection two about the essence because he's about to, Van Til's about to hit heavy on it. So I want to be able to, um, I want to be able to, to reference it. Oh, we're on the simplicity we got here. There we are. When the existence of a cause is demonstrated from the effect, this effect takes place of the definition of the cause and the proof of the cause's existence. This is especially the case in regard to God. Because in order to prove the existence of anything, it is necessary to accept as the middle term uh, the meaning of the word and and not its essence, for the, the question of its essence following on the question of its existence. Now, the names of God are derived from his effects. Consequently, in demonstrating the existence of God from his effects, we may take for the middle term the meaning of the word God. So instead of saying instead of saying yes we do he says we don't have the essence but we do have the word god and we have the names of god which are eternal um infinite pure goodness mm-hmm. right. perfection but this is this is these these are autonomous names of god which are not derived from revelation so he's aquinas has divorced himself from revelation even further Okay, back to Van Til, page 25. <laughs> All right, now it gets good. <laughs> he himself faces the question: How is it how it is possible that we should be able to say anything about God if we cannot say everything about Him? Is not the essence of a thing the middle part of the syllogism? He asks, and he answers this. He sorry, and his answer is that the unusual case, in the that in this unusual case we cannot take the nature of the thing as we are speaking of the being of the middle term of the syllogism, but we must take account of the meaning of the word God. Everybody calls the first cause of reality God. If we have proved the necessity for the idea of a first cause, therefore we have proved the existence of God. But who, we ask, is this everybody? Is not the whole massa perditionos, uh, which is uh, the, the damned masses in Latin, Hmm. Is not the whole damned masses, the millions of covenant breakers who have suppressed the knowledge of the Creator within themselves, is is uh, is it they who are subtly making themselves believe that they are doing justice by revelation of God when talking about a first cause? They want to be theists only if they do not need to face a judge and a Creator. We must, therefore, hold Thomas to this point. He is logically bound to tell us about the nature of God if we were to accept his proof for the existence of God is valid. Yeah. Hmm. And that's just it. He Thomas tries to get away from it by saying, "Well, we have the word God, and we have what we all know is God." And so my proof will end up looking like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pure convention.
0: Yeah. Right. Very much so. And, and calling him out and on that's it. That's what it is. Yeah. You can't separate existence from his properties. Yeah. Right. Or what he's like. Oh,
1: yeah, or who yeah, who he is because yeah. like like Babing said, is he personal or personal? Conscious mm-hmm. or unconscious? Is he here or is he there? Right. We just don't know. So, what's the point? Yeah. We just know there might be a first cause, but that first cause could be—I mean, it could be—it could be anything. Mm-hmm. Big I mean, bang, has big ha- bang. It has to have, yeah, it has to have some transcendent properties, but none that even come close to looking like yeah. the God in Scripture, the God who's revealed Himself in Christ. And it's
2: so interesting that you know that happens in the academic level, but it happens day to day in just Christian or religious conversation. You, you run into people all the time say things like. Oh yeah, I pray to God every day. Mm-hmm. But you know, the character of God that's being referenced there is—it could be themselves, or it could just be sort of a mysterious force out right. there. But it's—you know—how many people pray to uh, a judge that they know they are have a covenant lawsuit against, right? right in which they're the guilty party.
1: I always think. Uh, I mean, he talks about the name God. But what does Peter say to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12? He says, there's no name given to men by which they must be saved. And he's referring not to the name God. He's referring to the name Christ, hmm. Jesus. Yeah. And that is just so far removed from what Aquinas
0: is saying. <laughs> it's true. <Right. laughs> yeah.
2: And, and, yeah, and in uh, what is it? Is it 1 John where John says uh, anybody who uh, denies the Son denies the Father? Right. Yeah, right, uh, exactly. So you can't just you can't have the father. You can't have just like mm-hmm. general God without already right. having the Son if you have a proper understanding of it.
0: Yeah. That's why the goal is not just bare general theism.
2: Right. And that's and, and that's why you'll never get from bare
1: general theism to Christ. Right. Yeah. I mean you can I could easily go from here to um, to Allah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or I you know, I can just I can go here to many different deities mm-hmm. and i can start applying predicates to that deity as long as that deity is the first efficient cause of right everything. right yeah.
2: aristotelian aristotelianism itself fits in very well with islam
1: well yeah it was, it was i mean it was the islamic comment commentators and uh those writing kind of mini mini metaphysics after aristotle especially avicenna and Averroes. Uh, right who exactly brought, you know who brought um aristotle to the west yeah and it was there is their paradigm now these guys are brilliant and they right. write brilliant philosophy it just it, it as long as it's posterior to our christian faith And that's my point in the beginning i said i was interested in philosophy now this might all sign doom and gloom and like we should never read thomas again but if you just like baving said stick this after your faith it's genius we believe that God's the first efficient cause oh, of everything, absolutely. don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We all believe that here.
0: In the Christian context, that's right. In the right. Christian
1: context. And reading this, it is it is one of the it, it is just a very explicit and deep way of 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 explaining that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's and that's the that's the power and that's the force I find in scholasticism. Yeah. Unfortunately, they have this principle that you just need to correct. Mm-hmm. And after you correct that, it you have opportunities. Yeah. It's, it's not amazing.
0: a rung on a ladder to get to the Christian context. Right.
1: This is my last. This is gonna be my, my my critique, and I know you guys will empathize let's, with
2: this. Yeah, no, let's hear it. Ah, 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 <laughs> <Thanks, Jerry. laughs> ah.
1: So I said, if you remember, this classic method is they ask a question, they bring up objections against their answer, and then they bring up a, a authority, an authoritative source that's really gonna bolster their answer. And then Aquinas says, I answer that, and then answers the question, uh, answers the objections in the end. So in that second article, right, where he, all those objections were being brought up and he was trying to answer their uh yeah, all uh-huh. right. This is his authority. He okay. says, "On the contrary, that uh that it cannot be demonstrated." He says, "On the contrary, the invisible things of him are clearly seen being understood from the things that that have been made." The apostle uh, says this in Romans 1. 20. Romans 1 quote. Now
2: he adds, his, "This is this is
1: his words." But this would, be, this would not be unless the existence of God could be demonstrated th- through the things that are made. For the first things, uh, sorry. For the first thing we must know of anything is whether it exists. What's the difference here between our interpretation of Romans 1, uh, 18 through 22, and Thomas's? Good question. The difference I see here, and you can also find this in a commentary on Romans, because um, you know, he's an impressive guy. He wrote well commentary is almost a whole. On the New Testament. But uh, the difference is, is that we don't believe that the existence of God is wrought through demonstration, through the creation. Mm-hmm. We believe it is phonero, revealed. Revealed,
2: exactly. Right.
1: That's, it's, God is manifested. Or, in the first part of Rome of of, uh, of Romans one eighteen, you know, it says uh, is the first word, uh gar, ho- orge, for the wrath of God is Revealed, yeah, mm-hmm. and then he uses the word "finero," which is to show or make manifest. Yeah, you don't find any of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: in his understanding of how God is revealed in nature. Yeah, all you have is sense perception and a, a, and an analogy. Yeah, and that's and that's what we have to base on, and that's why uh, Kant and Hume could just go to town on it.
0: Yeah, because exactly. there's just so
1: many assumptions, and there's just <laughs> yeah. I and mean, we have a guarantee, because we inject our theological categories into it, that these things are revealed. And yeah, I do believe this world does reveal that God is is a first cause, mm-hmm. and I do believe that causality does reveal God. But yeah. only, but I don't believe it does this definitively. And I only do, I, I only believe this because I think the world is inherently revelatory, because it is imaging God,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not in the same covenantal fundamental sense as us being the image of God, but you know what I mean.
2: Right, and in, in Romans, one they're speaking about the the unbelievers there that that Paul is referencing, it just it fits. If you keep reading, it just fits in right, just so tightly with. Therefore, they they have no excuse. Right, they have absolutely no excuse. Mm-hmm. So there's no reasoning away. Yeah, you know, because it's it's revealed.
1: Yeah, there is no there is no demonstration. Everybody knows God, and. um that is that is a revealed fact. It's really really revealed in you and and from without. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could call it an actuate an actuating efficient cause, uh, if you're put in this uh, scholastic language. But anyway, so that would be my critique of when he references that verse. That it takes demonstration. Yeah. Because I just, I don't think that's what's in view in Romans 1, eight,
2: uh, 18 right. through 22. So they're without excuse, except those that don't have demonstration. Yeah, it's, it's just... They mm-hmm. all are.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. It's not, therefore, they have a really proper and correct theology.
1: No, what's even, what what, no. Van, Til, what Van Til will harp on is this, they know. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is innate knowledge, not innate ideas in the Kantian sense, but this is... That this is the, the sense of divinity that Calvin speaks about. Yeah, right.
2: it's been made plain.
1: And it is it is anterior. This right. is what's been taken for granted but suppressed and uh, and stifled and corrupted.
0: Yeah. Right. So um, just looking ahead here, so the, the plan uh, from here on out, we want to deal with the rest of the ways too at some point. Um, yeah, there will I think...
1: be another full session on question two because mm-hmm. uh, question two is a little bit more fundamental. Uh, Mm kind of like question one if you notice in question one he calls this the most manifest way Mm -hmm. so this is I think his favorite one Mm -hmm. Aquinas' Aquinas' favorite one we all have our favorites Yeah. and uh, so question two is very similar but uh, we will get into the infinite regress uh, question and there's some good reading I would like to do about that before I present it and then I'll I'll finish it off with the last three which present the necessity argument and a teleological argument
0: Nice. yeah okay good well uh, thanks Bob You can um, find us at Westminster's website, www.wts.edu. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Westminster Online, youtube.com slash Westminster Online. And of course, uh, Reform Forum is reformforum.org. Look forward to having you join us next time on Philosophy for Theologians.